Volcresi Parks in central Milan, she had to walk onto mine. Dave, I have to talk to you. Uh-huh. I saved my first drink I have with you. Here. No. No, Dave. Not tonight. Especially tonight. Please. Why did you have to come to Milan? There are other places. I wouldn't have come if I'd known that you were here. Believe me, Dave. It's true. I didn't know. It's funny about your voice, how it hasn't changed. I can still hear it. David, dear, I'll record with you any place. We'll get the microphone together and never stop. Don't, Dave. I can understand how you feel. <laughs> you understand how I feel? How long was it we had, honey? I didn't count the shows. Well, I did. Every one of them. Mostly I remember the last one. The Wild Finish. It's a good job we cut out all the behind-the-scenes bits before uploading the show. Can I tell you a story, Dave? Has it got a wild finish? I don't know the finish yet. Well, go on. Tell it. Maybe one will come to you as you go along. It's about a girl who had just come to Manchester from her home in Winchester. In a small bunker come recording studio of some colleagues, she heard the voice of a man about whom she'd heard her whole professional life. A very silly and crazy man. He opened up for her a whole beautiful world, full of knowledge and thoughts and intros. Everything she knew or ever became was because of him. And she looked up to him and worshipped him, with a feeling she supposed was professional respect. Yes, it's very pretty. I heard a story once. As a matter of fact, I've heard a lot of stories in my time. They went along with the sound of a tinny piano playing in the parlour downstairs. Mister, I met a man once when I was a kid, it always began. <laughs> well, I guess neither one of our stories is very funny. Oh. Oh, Sam. Play it once, Sam. Play the Jodcast theme for us one last time. The Jodcast, from Italy with love. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast, July issue. Hello and welcome to the July edition of the Jodcast and we are coming to you from, well, what is it Jen? I think it's a, a patch of grass. A very small patch of grass. In central Milan at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's great, we've got the trams going past, we've got cars, this is the quietest we could find with all the luggage that we both have. We're getting some very strange looks from people, it's a lot of fun. This is the Jodcast. <laughs> The Jodcast goes truly international. Yeah. So, uh, in the show this time, we find out about high-speed astronomy, and Ian tells us what you can see in the night sky in July. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, new magnetar candidate discovered an outburst, probing closer to a black hole with high-energy X-rays, and further evidence of a potential ocean on one of Saturn's moons. Neutron stars are created when massive stars explode as supernovae at the end of their lives. The violent explosion compresses the core of the star, resulting in a very dense object spinning very fast. While these neutron stars have strong magnetic fields, hundreds of thousands of times stronger than any man-made magnet, there is a subclass of stars with magnetic fields hundreds of times stronger still. Known as magnetars, only 14 of these objects have been discovered so far. But on the 22nd of August 2008, X-rays reached Earth from a massive outburst of an unknown object. The burst of high-energy photons triggered an automatic sensor on board the SWIFT satellite, 
and within hours the Eximum Newton satellite was also monitoring the event. The outburst lasted for four months, and hundreds of smaller bursts were recorded over this period. The astronomers studying the satellite data soon realised that what they were seeing was probably due to the outburst of a previously undiscovered magnetar. It is thought that an outburst like this occurs when the unstable magnetic field pulls the crust of the magnetar, allowing matter from inside the star to escape in an exotic volcanic eruption. This material can interact with the magnetic field, changing its configuration and releasing yet more energy. This particular object, known as SGR 0501 plus 4516, is located roughly 15,000 light-years away in the constellation of Auriga, and is the first new magnetar candidate in a decade. Although all known magnetar candidates are located a long way from Earth, their flares are so energetic that they can supply as much energy to our detectors as is recorded by solar flares from our own sun. The magnetic fields on a magnetar are so strong that if one were as close as half the distance to the moon, it would wipe the details off every credit card on Earth. While the exact mechanism that forms a magnetar is not yet certain, the analysis of SGR 0501 plus 4516, published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society during June, does provide strong evidence that the two classes of magnetar, known as anomalous X-ray pulsars and soft gamma-ray repeaters, are actually different phenomena from one type of object, rather than two physically distinct classes of magnetar. The extreme environment surrounding supermassive black holes in active galaxies is difficult to see directly, due to both the large distances of these galaxies from Earth, and the high levels of obscuration by the surrounding accretion disk and dusty torus. One method of probing this region is through observing the shape and time variability of spectral lines emitted by the gas in the region surrounding the black hole. Spectral lines are caused by the emission of photons at specific wavelengths. Each atom and molecule emit lines at different sets of wavelengths, resulting in a sort of chemical fingerprint, which can be used as a diagnostic tool when studying the interstellar medium, as well as the atmospheres of stars and planets. In the case of active galaxies, there is a large amount of high-energy X-ray radiation, which can be studied by satellites such as the European Space Agency's XMM-Newton. This X-ray continuum can knock electrons out of atoms from orbits close to the atomic nucleus, if the incoming photon has sufficient energy. When this happens, an electron from a higher orbit can drop down to fill the hole, emitting an extra photon as it does so. These emitted photons have specific energies, corresponding directly to the difference between the energy states of the two orbits. One such X-ray emission line, known as the Iron K line, has been detected in the central regions of several active galaxies over the last 15 years. But a paper published in Nature last month describes how, for the first time, both the Iron K and Iron L lines have been detected. The observations of both of these spectral features in one galaxy has allowed the researchers to investigate in detail the region immediately surrounding the supermassive black hole at the centre of the galaxy known as 1H0707-495. Led by Andrew Fabian at the University of Cambridge, the team have studied the shape of the lines, which are distorted in characteristic ways by the speed of the orbiting iron atoms, the energy needed for the X-rays to escape the black hole's gravitational field, and the spin of the black hole itself. The fact that both the K and L iron lines are present suggests that the region around the black hole is much richer in iron than the rest of the galaxy. Modelling of this galaxy shows that iron is nine times more abundant than it is in the Sun. 
The team also measured how the brightness of the L-line varied with time. Careful analysis of the data showed a time lag of 30 seconds between changes in the X-rays seen directly and those seen in reflection from the disk. The delay of this echo lets the size of the reflecting region be determined, and leads to an estimate of 3 to 5 million solar masses for the mass of the black hole. The observations also showed that the black hole is spinning very rapidly, and swallowing the equivalent of two Earths every hour, close to its theoretical limit. Recent images from the Cassini spacecraft showed spectacular plumes of gas erupting into space from fractures in the surface of Enceladus, one of Saturn's many moons. A popular theory explaining these plumes is that they come from a subsurface ocean kept liquid beneath the frozen icy surface by tidal heating generated by the moon's eccentric orbit around Saturn. Two papers published in the journal Nature on the 25th of June use very different techniques to investigate the chemistry of these plumes to try and pin down details of the model. Using the Keck Telescope in Hawaii and the Anglo-Australian Telescope in Australia, a team led by Nick Schneider at the University of Boulder in Colorado made sensitive observations looking for spectral signatures of sodium in both the plumes and Saturn's E-ring, thought to contain significant material from the plumes. A subsurface ocean in contact with the Moon's rocky core would be expected to contain significant amounts of sodium in the form of salt, as is the case with Earth's oceans. So, if these plumes are caused by geysers from water just below the surface, then the sodium signal should have been easily detected. Despite more than 13 hours of observing time, the team saw no significant spectral lines due to sodium, apparently ruling out an ocean immediately below the surface. Another team, led by Frank Postberg at the Max Planck Institute for Nuclear Physics in Heidelberg, Germany, used data from the Cosmic Dust Analyzer experiment on board Cassini. They analysed the mass spectra of thousands of E-ring dust particles and found a small but significant population of grains rich in sodium salts. At first, these two results seemed contradictory. Where do the sodium-rich grains come from if the plumes themselves contain no detectable trace of sodium? However, the suggestion is that the plumes actually come not from a subsurface reservoir, but from an ocean much deeper beneath the surface. The proposed explanation is that a deep, salty ocean exists many kilometres below the surface. Evaporation from this ocean releases pure water as jets of steam into the E-ring, leaving a salty residue behind. The sodium-rich grains found in E-ring could be carried to the surface by gas bubbles in these jets, creating salty droplets which freeze once they reach the surface, dragged along with the flow and out into the E-ring. In this model, the amount of sodium carried to the surface in these bubbles is too small to be detected by ground-based spectroscopy, so it's consistent with the results reported by Schneider's team. Further observations are planned, as Cassini is due for four further flybys of Enceladus before mid-2010. And finally, the Herschel satellite, launched last month from French Guiana, has taken its first images. On the 14th of June, one month after launch, the command to open the cryostat lid was sent to the spacecraft. Although the telescope has not yet reached its final orbit at L2, and is still undergoing testing and commissioning, the team operating the satellite attempted a sneak preview test image on the same day the cryostat lid was opened. From a list of potential targets for this first imaging test, the Whirlpool Galaxy, or M51, was chosen partly because of the comparable data available from other infrared instruments, such as the MIPS camera on Spitzer. 
Despite being at a very early stage in commissioning, the resulting images are spectacular, showing that the telescope optics are performing extremely well so far. Further commissioning is underway before full sights operations begins later in the year. Thanks for that, Megan. And that was a, it was an amazing picture that Herschel sent back. And with news of some more of the space missions that are up at the moment, here's Jen. What you got for us? Well, first of all, the Mars rover Spirit is still stuck up there. Um, but as it happens, it's stuck in a place called Troy, which has turned out to be one of the most interesting places that Spirit has been. So while it's not moving, it's still getting a lot of scientific data up there. So it's not, it's not stuck, it's more sort of in one place, but it's uh, taking a holiday. A yes. very useful holiday. Yes, of course. From orders. <laughs> um, NASA have also launched two missions to the moon on the 18th of June. There's the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is now in orbit around the moon, at, I think quite a low orbit. And they've also got the Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite. Uh, I think the idea of this is that part of it is going to be crashed into the moon, and then the bit that's still up in orbit around the moon will sense what is sent up from the impact. Okay. So I think these are some missions kind of going out there before they send people back to the moon, right. and then maybe mm -hmm. to Mars as well. Yes, I was always uh, saying in the planetarium that we were hoping to send people up to Mars in the 2030s or thereabouts. So uh, I think that's still NASA's yeah, overall NASA's plan. Yeah. yeah, so I think the reconnaissance orbiter is trying to find suitable landing places and mm -hmm. maybe somewhere that they can put a base up. So we'll okay. be following that with great interest. Definitely. And uh, one thing that we've been following, well, not we, but uh, everyone else has been following for the last 18 years is Ulysses that was a joint European-US satellite that was launched in, oh, all the way back in 1990. And uh, this ESA NASA mission was designed to survey the environment in space above and below the sun's poles. Unfortunately, after more than 18 years, uh, they are finally going to ditch the mission and uh, final communication at the point of recording will be held on the 30th of June. That's another one of the spacecraft which has managed to last way past its original design life. Uh, so about four times its expected design life. So that's, uh, they're pretty good, these things. Yeah. They, they make them well. Uh, we wish Planck all the best and, and Herschel. Of course, yeah. Especially as Stuart has a vested interest <laughs> in Planck. And the final thing I wanted to mention about um, space missions is that this month is going to be the 40th anniversary of the moon landings mm, yes. on the 20th of July. Yeah. And believe it or not, the, one, the Apollo 11 astronauts, Buzz Aldrin, has recorded a hip-hop song with the help of Snoop Dogg. I, it sounds unbelievable. I didn't believe it until I actually saw the video. I, I, I will watch it tonight. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so it's called Rocket Experience and you can download it on iTunes. And I think some of the money that they make from it are going to one of the space charities. So uh, our interview this month is with Professor Vic Dillon of the University of Sheffield. And it's all about high-speed astronomy. Now we're used to astronomy taking a long time, especially if you have to go outside and wait for your eyes to get adjusted to the dark. But this is using the instruments UltraCam and UltraSpec. And here's Stuart to tell us a bit more. 
Okay, we're joined today by Professor Vic Dillon from the University of Sheffield. Welcome to the Jodcast. Hello. And you've been talking to us today about high-speed astronomy. Yes, I've just uh, given a seminar here uh, about my research interests, which uh, revolve around you know study of variability in the night sky, but at high speeds, so things which vary on timescales of milliseconds to seconds. Right, so that's a lot quicker than we'd normally be imagining, say, amateur astronomers or even professional astronomers are usually looking over that's right. We're, minutes we're, to we're, hours. We're, we, that's right, exactly. We're, we're at the kind of very fast end. I mean, there's, there isn't much in the universe stellar size which is believed to, to vary on timescales faster than a millisecond, so that's our upper cutoff, our lower cutoff. So, so that's, so we're in this regime between the, the, the fast cutoff of one millisecond and a few seconds. Slower than that, and you can do that with with uh, conventional instruments that you find on the, at every telescope. So we've had to build special instruments to be able to go at the fast end. Right, so you've built a particular instrument. It's called UltraCam, I think. Yeah, and there's an associated one called UltraSpec. So we, we have these two instruments that we run, which uh, one takes images of the night sky. It's basically a fast camera, right. like a movie camera. And the other uh, splits that light up into its component wavelengths and takes spectra. At fast speeds, at high speeds. I guess taking pictures so quickly for astronomy purposes, you need some very advanced technology for that. Yes. I mean, everyone will be familiar with the cameras in your mobile phones and digital cameras, and they can take movies, and you know, that's 50 frames a second or you know faster even. But if you try turning that to the night sky, that camera in your mobile phone to the night sky and taking a movie, you'll quickly see that all you see is noise. It's like when the channel turns off at the end of the night on the TV screen. It's snow. And that's a problem with that kind of detector. If you want to run it fast, you pay a penalty with high noise. Mm. And so the name of the game is to run detectors fast but have very low noise. So then you can actually then start to detect individual photons. So that's the ultimate aim that that's what we try we try to do so what what do you do with the technology to make it um, so sensitive so we um there's a number of things we we use um a type of detector called a ccd a charge coupled device people might be familiar with those in very high end digital cameras you you get ccds and we use very high quality ones we use them cold which reduces the noise. So is that cooling it down with nitrogen? Or? No, we don't need to go that far. We we, we use a Peltier cooler, a solid-state kind of um, cooler, which takes it down to about minus 40 degrees centigrade. And we also have uh, custom-built electronics, which is very low noise and very fast, which enables us to take the data off the detector and put it onto our computer hard disk um, very quickly. So a combination of high-quality detectors dedicated custom-built electronics enables us to to go fast right so i i guess from that the half the problem is that for doing high speed things is that not only do you have to expose the ccd camera to the the sky you've also got to take the the data off the ccd camera exactly exactly right. there's there's two things yeah you've, you've got to you've got to shift the data off the chip and then get it into the correct format to put it onto your hard disk right um, and when it's when it's being taken off it can't be exposing at the same time well that's the trick actually because we use this type of device called a frame transfer ccd which basically has like a buffer and this 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 is like a storage area in which you you take an image shift it very quickly into this buffer that takes of order a millisecond so that's very fast and then while that buffer is dealing with getting rid of the data and putting it onto your hard disk you're exposing away your next image so you can very quickly then accumulate data without any gaps between the data frames 
and using various other tricks, we can get down to one image every few milliseconds. So, so that we use these frame transfer devices. Right. So, so now that you've got this millisecond um, exposures on the sky, and you can keep taking pictures every millisecond, what sort of objects are there that are varying so quickly? Because, I mean, we think of things that suddenly appear in the sky, like supernova. But usually things tend to vary quite slowly, like variable stars take days or hours to, to vary. So what sort of objects are you, are you looking at? Yeah, I mean, roughly speaking, if the things which are very fast are the things which are small. And the smallest uh, stellar-sized objects there are out there are white dwarfs, which are the size of the Earth, neutron stars, which are the size of a city, and uh, black holes, which are, again, you know, same size as a neutron star, size of a city or so. That's certainly the event horizons that size, a few kilometres brown dwarfs as well which are about the size of jupiter so that it's that kind of object that um that, that that we study because they're the things that vary at these high speeds and they vary in a number of different ways they can explode they can flare they can pulsate um they can accrete material uh, they can be eclipsed um there's a number of different ways they can vary and each one of the, each by studying this variability in, in its different forms we we can learn about the object so to give you uh, uh, one example, we can look at the uh, eclipse of a white dwarf, as I said, the size of the Earth. If it's in a binary system, and the, and the binary system is edge-on to our line of sight, the companion star to this white dwarf will eclipse it once every orbital period. And the eclipse of a white dwarf, because it's so small, um, will happen in a matter of tens of seconds. It'll all be over. It'll, it'll be a, it, the, the eclipse will start, and it'll be over in about 30 seconds' time. And the time it takes to eclipse that star is the time it took for the companion to cross its face. So, that's an, so it gives you an idea of how big it is. So it's one of the ways in which we can work out the sizes of these very small objects. We can work out how big they are from the how long it takes to eclipse them. So that's just one example of why high speed is important. And I guess you're going to have really high data rates as well if you're collecting lots of frames. Yeah, we do. Although it's not, it's surprisingly not as... Uh, they're not the highest data rates that you see in astronomy. Um, they're typically a few megabytes a second that that we get. So there's plenty of projects out there which are kind of accrue more than that. So yeah, it's it's, it's more than handleable. Right. Yeah. And earlier you talked about there being two instruments: as UltraCam and UltraSpec. So UltraSpec, are you doing similar types of observations? Yes. Um, well, UltraSpec is slightly different because it's um, it takes spectra. So there you take the light from the star and you split up into its component wavelengths. And by doing that, you take the same amount of light which you previously had concentrated into a nice focused spot on your detector. You spread it out into a line which runs all the way across your detector. And it's the same amount of light. And so what happens is each pixel in your detector has much less light in it. And therefore the noise in your detector becomes much more important, has a much bigger effect because you spread the light over so many more pixels. So to do spectroscopy... You need to have low noise detectors. And on top of that, if you want to go fast spectroscopy where you've got very little light falling in each exposure, then that really makes the problem bad if you've got high detector noise. So the, 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 the trick there is to try and find a detector which has no detector noise and then you've got some hope of actually being able to do fast spectroscopy. Are these instruments working on telescopes right now? So yeah, they, uh, they're private instruments. So we, we, we operate very differently to the average astronomer. The, av- the average astronomer will go to the telescope and use the instruments provided by the observatory. Um, they go, they arrive the night before their observations start and they leave the next morning um, and they don't have to worry about anything else. 
with us we it's our own instrument because the observatory don't provide specialist equipment mm. like this so we ship everything out to the observatory with us too we use the the instrument on the um, eight meter very large telescope in chile and the four meter william herschel telescope on la palma in the canary islands so we ship the instrument backwards and forwards basically between chile la palma and sheffield um we have it back in sheffield to to work on it enhance it and maintain it um we have to get to the telescope about a week before our time starts set it everything up then we carry out our observations we're typically given blocks of two or three weeks and at the end we have to pack everything away and ship it back so so that's how we uh how we operate it sounds like fun yeah it is quite fun we use these kind of rock band crates <laughs> black black ones with these kind of aluminium strips around which funnily enough uh we were recommended by an ex-roadie who worked in our department in physics and he said you need one of these if you want to look after your kit because that's why we put all our million pound mixing desks in <laughs> on the, when we're on the road and it'll look after your instrument just as well you know so so we took his advice for it and it was excellent advice yeah well we wish you the best of luck with um, Ultraspec and Ultracam for the future. And if you have any exciting results, we hope you come back and tell us about them. I, I sure will. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Stuart. And if you do want to do some more classical astronomy, then uh, here is Ian Morrison to tell us all about what is up in the night sky in July. Well, the night sky for July. Well, as the sun setting, Leo is low in the west with the planet Saturn. We'll discuss a bit later. A little higher towards the southwest is the rather sparse constellation of Virgo with the one bright star Spica. But higher up towards the south is the very bright star Arcturus, part of the constellation of Bootes. And just to the left of Arcturus, you might see a rather lovely little arc of stars. It's called Corona Borealis, the northern star. To the south, and higher up is the constellation of Hercules. The four brightest stars make up what is called the keystone. And if you've got binoculars, or better still, a small telescope, if you follow the stars that make up the right-hand side of the keystone and go from the bottom to the top about two-thirds of the way, you should see a slightly fuzzy object. That is the most wonderful globular cluster we can see in the Northern Hemisphere. It's called M13. In a telescope of 8 to 12 inches, it looks absolutely stunning. It's a spherical object of perhaps a million or so stars, which dates back really from the origin of our galaxy. And there are quite a number of them that basically fill up a halo around the centre of the galaxy. Below Hercules is Ophiuchus, really a fairly empty constellation. But then you come, going downwards, to the bright star Antares, the red star in Scorpius, and over to the left is the teapot of the constellation of Sagittarius. Sadly, from northern England, we don't see them very well, perhaps from the south coast. They're a little bit higher in the sky, and you will see them a little bit better. Preferably go on a nice holiday down to Tenerife or somewhere in southern Europe. But looking towards the southeast, rising through the night, we have that wonderful part of the sky contain the constellations of Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle. The three brightest stars, Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lyra, and Altair in Aquila, make up what I think Sir Patrick Moore called the Summer Triangle. Very obvious 
triangle of stars you'll see. If you've got binoculars, go from Altair, the bottom star, up towards Vega about a third of the way. There's a rather dark region of the Milky Way, which you're crossing there, which is called the Cygnus Rift. And in there you might see a rather nice little asterism or cluster. It's called Brocky's Cluster, or more commonly the Coat Hanger, because it looks like an upside-down coat hanger. Well, what about the planets? Well, it's not the best month, perhaps, for the planets, but let's go through them and see what the chances are. Uh, Jupiter is now in Capricornus, and it's becoming more easily visible this month as its elevation in the early morning sky gets somewhat higher. It's about 23 or so degrees above the horizon at the beginning of July at dawn. By the end of the month, it's actually rising about 9 o'clock. So if you stay up till around midnight, you've got a good chance to see it. Its magnitude is about minus 2.7 to 2.8, changes a little bit during the month. But as I've said before, at the present time, Jupiter is quite close to the lowest part of the ecliptic, so it never gets all that high in the sky. In fact, later in the year, we'll see it about 25 degrees above the southern horizon at transit. And that means our views of it aren't really quite as good as they are sometimes. If you actually observe with a telescope and use a coloured filter, say a green filter, you actually get rid of some of the effects of refraction and you might get a better image. It's going to be the, to the lower left of the moon on the 13th of July. So that might be a nice little skyscape to look at. Well, Saturn, well, we've just got really about a week or so to see it. It's low below Leo the lion, in fact, just below one of its left feet. But you need a very low western horizon to see it. The magnitude at plus 0.7 is not very bright, certainly not as typically as bright as Saturn, because the rings are very close to edge on. In fact, they start July at about 3.2 degrees from the line of sight, and that narrows to just 1.9 degrees by the end of the month. So you can see that in a few months' time, when of course sadly we will not be seeing uh, Saturn, they'll be actually edge-on, and it won't be until 2016 when we'll see them at their widest again. So you've got just a chance to see Saturn very low in the west the first week or two of July. Now the other planets are all in the dawn sky, and in fact getting better to see as the month goes by. Uh, Mercury reached what's called western elongation in the middle of June. That's when it was furthest away from the sun in angle and best seen. So now it's going back, it's closing rapidly, and in just the first few days of July, you might be able to spot it very low in the east-northeast, and you'd almost certainly need binoculars, but don't use binoculars as the sun rises. Just have a look before then. Its magnitude is about minus 1.3, which is relatively bright, but it will be low down. Now Mars is becoming more prominent. Um, it's an elevation of 25 degrees due east as the sun rises on the 1st of July, so it's probably fairly easy to spot. Magnitude of plus 1.1. As it nears us, the angular size is increasing. It's actually got to about 5 arc seconds. So on a particularly good night, when the seeing is good, a small telescope might begin to pick up some of the surface features, such as Certis Major, or perhaps a patch of brightness where the poles are. But really, we've got to wait a few months to see it at its best. Venus is now easily visible in the pre-dawn sky. It rises at about between 1.30 and 2 at the beginning of July. It's about 20 degrees above the horizon as the sun rises, 
and by the month's end it's going to be very obvious with an elevation of 28 degrees. So you won't really be able to miss it looking in the east if you're up bright and early as dawn approaches. The magnitude is about minus 4.1. That stays pretty much constant the whole time we see Venus. The reason is that as it nears us, the phase thins. It's like a new moon or a thin crescent moon. So we have a thin crescent Venus. But it's much closer to us. So the area that's illuminated that we see actually stays fairly constant. And the brightness stays typically at around 4 to 4.4 minus uh, throughout the whole of the time we see it. So there we go. Those are the, the planets that we have a chance to see this month, which is in fact most of them. And we'll now look at some of the highlights, and I will in fact mention another planet as we do that. Well, there are a couple of things on July the 10th. Um, if you've got a telescope, there's a very nice lineup of Ju Jupiter's Galilean satellites. They're all out to the right, and you have Europa, Io, Ganymede, and Callisto in that order going out from Jupiter. So that's a nice thing to actually look at. But at the same time, Jupiter is as close as it gets to Neptune in the sky. In fact, it's only about uh, 34 arc minutes. That's about half a degree away to the north from Jupiter. Well, Neptune's much fainter, magnitude 7.8, so it won't look nearly as bright as Jupiter, which is magnitude minus 2.8. Between them, however, is a star called Mu Capricornus, which is at 5.1 magnitude, and that makes a very thin triangle. So if you've got a transparent sky from a dark site, 8 by 40 binoculars ought to allow you to see both Jupiter and, of course, Neptune together. And given, let's say, an 80 millimeter um, telescope with a fairly wide-angle low-power lens, you might even spot the star, Neptune, Jupiter, and see some of its satellites all in the same view. That would be very, very nice. So July the 10th, a good time to wake up early in the morning. Well, I talked about noctilucent clouds last month, and July is still a very good time to see them. In fact, some of my colleagues saw them uh, in, in the middle of June. They're very, very high clouds, and they seem to be becoming more apparent now than they used to be. Whether that's anything to do with global warming, we don't really know. So you need to look to the north. They appear at about 80 kilometers or 50 miles above the Earth, so they're the highest clouds we ever see. And you see them when they're illuminated by the sun, which is below our northern horizon. So the lower part of the atmosphere is dark, but the sun's rays can reach these very high clouds. So if it's really clear, particularly to the north after sunset, it's worthwhile waiting a bit to see if you spot them. There are two final things to say. On July the 18th, the Moon occults the Pleiades cluster. It actually runs through the lower part and will hide the star Merope for a while. That's on the morning of the 18th of July. So that's certainly worth having a look at. And finally, on July the 13th, again in the early morning, Venus, which we've mentioned before, in fact, is very close, just nine arc minutes, to the star Epsilon Tauri. That's a 3.5 magnitude star, which is one of the brightest stars in the Hyades cluster in Taurus. So if you actually look around the 13th at Taurus, you'll see the very bright reddish-orange star Aldebaran in the Hyades cluster, but above it, the white 
planet Venus. So that would be a nice thing to try to see too. A pair of binoculars will be absolutely ideal for that. So in fact, there are one or two quite nice things to see this month. Of course, the nights are drawing in a bit, a little bit longer to see the sky, particularly towards the end of July. So good hunting. So let's say something about the Southern Hemisphere skies. If you're looking north during the month, then you see Leo setting in the northwest. Above that is the constellation of Virgo with its brightest star, Spica. You then pass, coming towards the east, Libra, and then into that rather lovely region where you have Sagittarius and Scorpius. Antares is one of the bright reddish stars you see relatively high in the sky. Fairly low in the sky, in the north, you have Arcturus, the bright star in Bootes, and to its lower right, Hercules. So those are some of the stars that we can see, of course, from the Northern Hemisphere. But what we cannot see, of course, is the wonderful view you'll have towards the south. The band of the Milky Way is arcing across the sky. Over to the southeast, you've got Sagittarius, the teapot. If you actually follow with binoculars, the line that the water would come out from if you poured out of the teapot, if you can imagine that, you should find a rather lovely star cluster. It's called Messier 7, M7. Very nice object. And just above the teapot is a very lovely region of luminosity, of nebulosity, called the Lagoon Nebula. So have a look out for those. And then south and arcing over towards the southwest, there's this lovely part of the sky, the constellations of Centaurus, Crux, the Southern Cross, and Vela. And there's lots of lovely regions of nebulosity in that region. So do scan it with binoculars. It looks absolutely wonderful. There's the Eta Carina Nebula there as well. And in there there's a star, probably one of the next stars that's going to explode that we can see from Earth, but we don't actually know when. And just finally, relatively low down in the south, so not quite so good to see at the present time as earlier this year, we have the large and the small Magellanic clouds. The large Magellanic cloud is pretty much to the southwest, between south and southwest, about 7 p.m. in mid-July. And then south, we have the small Magellanic cloud. Again, with binoculars, you might see a little tiny blob, fuzzy blob, very close to that. That, again, is a wonderful globular cluster called 47 Tucani, one of the wonderful sights of the Southern Hemisphere. So good hunting in the south as well. Thanks for that, Ian. Now, behind us, you can hear the wonderful sounds of Milan. And that's because we are recording this fairly live and out in the <laughs> open. Yeah. And uh, another thing that we want to record live is the Jodcast live. Actually live. In Jodrell Bank. And we are looking to do it on the 21st of November. So if you are around uh, Jodrell Bank on the 21st of November, then please do drop us an email, drop us a line from the website, and uh, let us know that you'd like to come. Bring a birthday present for me, because it's my birthday on the 19th. That's just to, <laughs> just to put that in there. I don't think anyone's going to no, no, get you some not, presents. No. You may. Maybe. 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 Thank you. <laughs>
the first time we've actually met, actually. So uh, yeah, this yeah. is quite strange. Yeah. It's very weird because I'm recording with you now. Yeah. I recorded with Megan and Roy last time. It was Stuart before that. Um, mm -hmm. I'm being very diverse. Yes, you are. No yes, one else are. is meeting, but I'm meeting everyone. You are. Yeah. yeah. It's good for a Jodcast Junior to get to know the team. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I'm a junior anymore. We were discussing no, no, this no. on okay. the forum. Ah, okay. <laughs> but but you, you may not be a, Jod, a Jodcast Junior, but you're still a Jodcast Junior. Yes, I guess. Uh, yeah. I, I think you'll you'll keep that title until someone new joins. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have <laughs> to recruit some new blood in September. <laughs> uh, so, talking about receiving emails, uh, we have had a couple from you, the listeners. And Nick House sent us the news that a team of amateur astronomers has created an 87.4 megapixel image of the nine-day-old moon. And 87.4 megapixels, that's, that's more than you generally get on your average camera. But they used 288 high-resolution images from uh, Sir Patrick Moore's home in Selsey. Now, this image will be available to view and to purchase at www.lunarworldrecord.com and all proceeds will be donated to the Cystic Fibrosis Trust. Yeah, that's quite impressive. I think they're actually going to get into the Guinness Book of World Records for that. It is an amazingly detailed image. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also one of the Jodcast regulars, Stella, has reminded us that a fireball is a meteor and not a meteorite. I'm not so. quite sure who said that, but <laughs> we'll uh, grab their knuckles for it. Yeah, we will. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, because we are out and about, we haven't had much chance to check the internet. Uh, over on the forum, people have been saying how much they've been enjoying the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast, mm -hmm. part of the International Year of Astronomy. Uh, there's not been much activity on the forum, so if everyone wants to head on over there. Mm -hmm. or, or even say hello to us on Facebook. Or give us another five-star rating on iTunes. We will take all of the five-star ratings that we can get. So uh, do have a, a look at the forum at forum.jodcast.net. Go to Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. And we're on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And that brings us to the end of another issue of the Jodcast. Thanks go to Professor Vic Dillon and Dan Dan Zhu. And... Of course. Thank you very much, Jen, for, for <laughs> finally meeting me. And, uh, it's been a pleasure. Yes. Uh, the baggage hall at Milan Centrale Station. <laughs> I shall remember it for, for years to come. Yes. <laughs> and hopefully for the next edition, I'll be back safe and sound in Manchester. Yes. And I will be... Actually, I think I'll be in Taipei, so I'll probably be <laughs> Skyping in from, from even further afield. <laughs> but yes, until next time, don't forget to jod on. Last night we said a great many things. You said I was to do the thinking for both of us. Well, I've done a lot of it since then, and it all adds up to one thing. You're getting on that plane to Manchester where you belong. But David, no, I... Now you got to listen to me. You have any idea what you'd have to look forward to if you stayed here? Nine chances out of ten, we'd both wind up in an astronomy podcast. You're saying this only to make me go? I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know you belong at Jodrell Bank. You're part of their work. The thing that keeps them going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not on it, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon, and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Jodcast life. We didn't have, we... We lost it until you came to the baggage collection hall in Milan Central Station. We got it back this morning. When I said I would never leave the show. And you never will. 
but I've got a job to do too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Jen, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of two little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Now, now. Here's looking at you, kid.